0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Episode 9 features Connor Coleman. Connor is a land management consultant based in the Roaring Fork Valley near Carbondale, Colorado. As a new resident to the valley myself, I was excited to come across his practice, Resiliency Lands. His interdisciplinary experiences in wildland firefighting, environmental management, forestry, ranching, and conservation have all shaped his career into what it is today. We loosely followed his career path with plenty of tangents every time we touched on a shared interest. Uh, I definitely hope to have Connor back on the show periodically so we can get into the, some some of the subjects that we didn't have time to cover. We, uh, we really found a lot of common ground. Uh, I look forward to future conversations. Once again, thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. All right, I'm here with Connor Coleman of Resiliency Lands. Connor, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Dylan. Good to meet you. Thanks for coming out.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, you welcomed me to your spot out here on a ranch, which I just asked you the name of and forgot already.
1: <laughs> we are sitting out here on the Coulter Creek Valley Ranch uh, outside of Carbondale, Colorado, in a little ranching community known to the locals as Missouri Heights.
0: Yeah, so I just got here to the Roaring Fork Valley a couple of weeks ago and was looking for people to speak to and pretty quickly came across Connor's work and... Um, in just our brief conversation before the podcast, we're finding that we have a lot in common in terms of uh, just looking at his bookshelf and um, some of the other things we like to do in terms of hunting. And we haven't even talked about fishing, but I'm just assuming you fish. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, let's let's kind of go from the beginning a little yeah. bit here and um, talk about your background and your upbringing and how you got to where you are and built this skill set as – um, what do you call yourself a land consultant?
1: Yeah, I guess when people ask me what I, what my profession is, the simple answer is, uh, I'm a private land management consultant. Uh, there's a lot to that. I like it cause it's vague. Um, and it's always changing and just as the world is always changing. And so that's one of the exciting things is that I don't have kind of a definition, say like a lawyer or a doctor, um, And, you know, obviously we're living in some exciting times. So it's been fun uh, to, for lack of better words, uh, during this time to, you know, figure out how to make my work reflect the crazy world we're in right now. But um, yeah, I'm, like I said, we're here in Colorado. I have been in Colorado now going on 10 years, but uh, most people don't realize I'm born and raised just outside of Cleveland in a, a suburb, just 10 minutes south of downtown Cleveland. Uh, but oddly enough, I grew up just two miles from the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, oh, okay. which is one of the most visited national parks in the park system. You know, everyone knows Yosemite and Yellowstone and Grand Canyon, which uh, are some of our most visited parks, but just by the nature of the proximity between Cleveland and Akron, so many, uh, urbanites and suburbanites are able to use that as their escape. And, uh, I had the fortune of, of, growing up there and being able to hop on my bike and go to the park we also had a great uh local metro park system Uh, my family our summer vacations tended to be going to visit state parks and national parks around the country so we did that i wouldn't say we're so much like the adventure outdoors type family that kind of for me came later in life but at least that exposure started uh just in my own backyard
0: yeah my my family was similar it was not exactly hunting and fishing, but we were outdoors a lot. And it was just like always visiting parks and getting outside. There was four kids. So it's just like, go get tired. Um, And that I think started my interest in, in nature as well. Um, So you're, you're in Ohio. And then as I understand it, you went to school out on the East coast.
1: Yeah. So I, I went, uh, I ended up going to college at a little liberal arts school in uh, central North Carolina called Catawba College. It's a town in Salisbury, which is between Charlotte and Greensboro. Uh, turns out I was somewhat unique amongst my peers in that I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go into the environmental field. And at that time, that wasn't really a mainstream conversation people were having. Uh, yeah. When I when I said to people, you know, when you're in high school, all your, your parents' friends are asking, oh, what are you going to what are you going to study in school? Where are you going to go? And I said, environmental science and everyone was, so are you going to be a park ranger? Uh, <laughs> are you going to save the whales? What, what, what exactly are you looking to do? So it was kind of blazing my own path from where I grew up. Uh, I was looking at a lot of schools up North, New York, Pennsylvania. Um, I think even in Ohio, but this program in North Carolina, Catawba was just a step above the rest and they were just about to open a new facility known as the center for the environment, which was a platinum lead certified building. I think the first one in North Carolina and one of the first, if not the first in the, uh, college university system, like, you know, nationally. So that was really exciting to have that opportunity and, so said, let's do it. I went down to North Carolina at, uh, I guess, 18 years old and yeah. and knew I wanted to do environmental science and thought it was more wildlife and it, you know, we'll get into the evolution of that, but um, it was the perfect fit and, and I couldn't have been happier with that decision.
0: Nice. Yeah. Beautiful part of the country. I um, spent time out in East Tennessee and was kind of, you mentioned, you know, that there were... a Innovative um, lead certified kind of um, facility, and I, I was surprised when I got out there to see that, that North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, there was a lot more progressive environmental thinking out there than I realized. I think from afar, I kind of thought it was the Southeast would be a little bit more, uh, <laughs> a little bit further behind. Um, but I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Tennessee out there, and it was you know super. Um, a fantastic landscape architecture program.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. The the South is always will always have a special place in my heart, and uh, I think even just out of necessity down there, certainly North Carolina, um, you can imagine how hot and humid it is. You're running air conditioning a good part of the year, and that eats into your your energy bill so hey why not throw some solar panels on or you know go above and beyond it 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 definitely
0: makes fiscal sense and and there's a longer history there than i realized of conservation um i mean just the smoky mountain range alone but then all these um i was talking with shane hardy last week at stone barns in new york these extremely wealthy families that started kind of working with early american conservationists a lot of the, and, and still even out here in the West, I think a lot of conservation came from um, people on the East coast and in New York, et cetera. Um, people like, like your idol, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, coming out here and understanding the importance of these lands before they were fully developed.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we'll get into further down the road here, uh, my graduate studies and in, including forestry school, but mm-hmm. um, the, First school of forestry was in Asheville, North Carolina, and um, Gifford Pinchot, right? No, it was uh, Carl Carl Shank. Oh. Carl Shank. Uh, I think Gifford Pinchot was consulted by the Vanderbilt family uh, of the the Vanderb- or the Biltmore Estate, which is in in Asheville, North Carolina, which I think is the largest residence. Might still be at least for a while. It was the largest residence in the nation. But we got the engaged
0: ban- there. Oh, did you? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, there
1: you have it. So you know. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it's you. I'm sure you were standing there, not thinking like, oh, this is the birthplace of forestry in America, and Carl Schenck was brought in. I believe he was from Germany. A lot of the foresters then, and, and formally educated foresters, were from Europe, mostly germany and i think france to an extent and uh the area around the the now area around the biltmore estate which is pisgah national forest uh, was originally owned by the biltmore family and then donated to the u.s government to become pisgah national forest but they did create the biltmore school of forestry there um when I was in forestry school, we went there on a field trip and got to see a lot of the the forest management there. There. So, so yeah, it was just, uh, I'm going way off track here, but it's just amazing how this very wealthy and prominent family in American history, uh, very kind of quietly now in in our history books were the people who, who started forestry in this nation.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. At least sponsored it kind of, For sure. which, um, is where I think a lot of steps forward in science come from and in art. It's like you've got a wealthy sponsor who lets someone kinda of roam free and um, they just form these partnerships and they find someone like Olmsted or Pinchot and they're off to the races. For sure. Let's go back to sorry to bring you off on a tangent there. Um,
1: That's how I live. I <laughs> will <laughs> be on tangents all day
0: long. I'm here. trying as a, to be a good podcast host and I find myself getting lost and, and trying to find the thread again. (laughs) Um, but, uh, we're pretty early on here, so let's keep going with your your education and how you got out here to Colorado.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll try and, you know, make this as streamlined as possible. Uh, studied environmental science. It was a bachelor of science in environmental science. Uh, it was a great program in that it touched on everything. I, I, was taking botany classes, ecology classes, um, building, uh, you know, I worked with the campus greening program, learning about green architecture and recycling and composting, horticulture, um, all of those things started also getting exposed to the place that policy and law and economics played in environmentalism and conservationism. And it was great it was a great experience uh you and i were talking before the podcast just about the ecology of place and you know learning it and spending that time in north carolina and taking these classes i really got to understand the ecology both uh plants and animals and and their co- the composition of these ecosystems and I thought to myself, I, I definitely want to go to graduate school. And I th- there's a lot of great programs all over the country that can meet my needs. But let's stay here in the South. I already know the ecology. Let's go to a program and I can focus more on the the other components of it. I can not have to worry about learning a new ecology when it comes to land management and conservation. So I was looking mostly in-state and, and throughout the South. Uh, I really thought I was going to end up at North Carolina State University studying wildlife biology and conservation. Uh, through the guidance of my graduate—I'm sorry, my, my undergraduate professor—he uh, told me to look at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University, which I was familiar with. Um, at that time, between college and grad school, I spent uh, my senior year interning at the local land trust, and then two years after that, working as a full-time staff person thinking that this isn't really what I want to do. I want to, I want to work with wildlife, but I did realize that the conservation work I was doing had tremendous benefit to, to wildlife. So stuck it out. But when it came time for graduate school, what I had come to realize was that we can conserve land. We can, and there's a lot of people doing it and it's, it's great work, but if you're not taking care of it and managing it well and, taking into consideration all these other outside variables that play into land management, those lands are going to be degraded and and those efforts are going to be for naught. So Mm. my interest in graduate school became a lot more complicated and I was seeking something interdisciplinary and that's how I ended up uh, at Duke University studying in the program there, initially looking at pursuing a master of environmental management. Uh, which I did, but then I also decided to get a Master of Forestry degree as well.
0: How long did that take with both of them?
1: <laughs> <laughs> too long. Too long. There's there's definitely I have peers who if you do it most efficiently, you can finish the joint degree program in two and a half years. Oh, okay. But you gotta push hard, you gotta take a lot of classes. Um my personality. I like to be involved with a lot of extracurricular activities. And that's exactly what I did at Duke. I spent time with professional societies. I ended up being the president of the Society of American Foresters chapter there, founded and was president of the Association for Fire Ecology chapter, went on to become the national president of that that professional organization and sat on the board of directors, the national board of directors, uh, all while I was still in school and uh, kept me very busy. I uh, did a bunch of other things, student council and uh, internships and volunteering. So okay, I took four years instead of two and a half.
0: So I thought we were similar. Here's one place where we differ. I do not like to do a lot of extracurriculars because I find that, especially in school, like I can do one thing well or I can do five things poorly. And so I would just kind of keep my head down, focus on my job or you know my schooling or now my my job. Um, and the podcast, I guess. But um, yeah, I find it, my brain just gets too scattered if I add too much to my schedule like that. But I noticed on your website, you're a member of like 15 different organizations and affiliations.
1: It's, and, and we'll, again, we'll get into this down the, the, the conversation here, but a lot of my work is just being in the know, staying up to speed with what's going on, what's predicted in the future on so many different fronts. So it's, it's good to be involved with those groups.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So you got the master's in, um, environmental management and forestry, and then you'd already had some experience working, working with a land trust. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about conservation easements and that whole process, because I'm still a little bit ignorant about how that all works. Um, but where did you go next? You went to another land trust after that? Yeah, well, somewhere in there, very briefly, I
1: um, worked for the what was then known as the Land Trust for Central North Carolina. Uh, well, that was the one I was at when I was in college and right after college. Before I started at Duke, I did an internship with the North Carolina Coastal Land Trust, which their service area was the entire eastern third of the state, 33 counties. So I wow. uh, became very much more familiar with the coastal uh, landscape, which plays into my graduate work, I, I have a very deep exposure to the coastal ecosystems. Uh, I always joked to people, they're like, well, so you study at the coast, but you're also forestry. And I was like, yeah, I want to be a kelp forester off the coast of California. <laughs> and they're like, is that a thing? I said, no, it's not. But...
0: Um, oh, I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Managing underground kelp forests or underwater kelp forests. But... Um, I love the salt water. I love the ecology down there. That also really exposed me to fire ecology and most people don't realize, but over 85% of prescribed fire in the nation happens in the Southeast. And part of the reason is because it is, uh, one, it's a fire dependent ecosystem all, all across the board there. Um, but the coastal plains, the longleaf pine forests, have a fire return of inter- interval of anywhere between one and three or three to five years, depending where you are. Okay. So we all know that fire suppression in this nation, Smoky Bear, uh, all those issues have really you know, just squashed the, the natural occurrence of fire. So a lot of the managers in those areas have to not only use fire as a, regu- a tool to regulate the ecology, but have to do it in a restorative way where they are figuring out how do we take this giant fuel load, reduce it and then manage and get to a space where it's where it should be.
0: And when you say fire dependent, I think um, there's so much that goes into that. Like literally the, the cones of those of the longleaf pine need a certain level of heat to even open up and um, shed seeds. Right. And Close. Close? Okay. I'll
1: add. So there's uh, two, the two, two main pines, especially in North Carolina, the longleaf pine and the, um, the pond pine, both fire-dependent pines, both found in the same areas, require fire in different fashions. Serotinus, uh cones are what you are referring to. The Latin name of the pond pine is Pinus serotina. It needs fire to open up. It's literally glued together with resin and that heat breaks apart those seals on the, the cones and allows the seeds to escape.
0: The pond pine, not the longleaf. No,
1: that, okay. that's the pond pine. And those, where they're found is in these what's called pocosins which are like pocket wetlands. So they're pretty wet areas and they're within the longleaf pine landscape. So the, la- the longleaf is more of a savanna ecosystem. Fire is pretty calm, maybe knee, waist high when it comes through. It's not very aggressive. It hits these pockets of wetland, and if conditions are right and they're dry enough, they they blow up. Mm. They, They burn to the ground, but they're designed to do that. So those cones are on the ground. They're waiting for that very intense fire to come through and release those seeds. And so people look at that and go, oh, man, that's... That's just lost. That that's lost. And people like me who are in the know are like, Hell yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, this know. is what it needs. <laughs> it's waiting for this. So you have those serotonous cones. In the case of longleaf, their uh, seed is is a very light seed. And on the understory is a lot of grass, a lot of needles. If the seed falls and lands, it's not going to be able to reach the soil. It's not going to be able to germinate. So in that case for that species, the fire clears out that, that detritus and all the stuff on the ground, exposes mineral soil, organic soil uh, as well, and allows the seed to have the ability to to germinate. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think um, I've been learning a lot more about disturbance, more about uh, animal disturbance, Um, and I think with fire, it's one of those things where it's hard to, it's hard to conceive of these long cycles that are fire dependent where you might look at an ecosystem and go, it looks healthy. It looks like it's in a peak state where it's holding a certain amount of wildlife. It's got stable populations and you watch the whole thing burn down and you go, what a tragedy. But like you're saying, it's really, it's just part of a cycle. It's a It's an event that has to happen eventually. Um, People,
1: when it comes to land management, what I've learned over the years is humanity is familiar with the human lifespan. And that's the scale we most relate to. So 50, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, we can conceive that. We can say, well, my grandmother was born then or my my you know grandchild is going to experience this beyond a human lifespan we have a very hard time comprehending so you look at the quote unquote destruction of a wildfire or a disturbance event a hurricane a tornado mudslide anything and and people's immediate response is oh my god it's destroyed Yeah. me since I'm trained in it go this is awesome we're <laughs> We're at square one. This is, we get to now see what it looks like at the very early state. These early serial states see what's happening. Yes, we've done things to make the the disturbance outcomes more, uh, in some cases, detrimental. But nature's always going to win. It's always going to win. And I love it. I get excited about it. Yeah. I, I see areas back in North Carolina, a tornado comes through. Obviously, I don't want anyone to get hurt. I hope people don't lose their houses. Granted, that's all taken care of. I'm excited to see <laughs> that path of that tornado and what yeah. happened and try and predict uh, what's going to happen next.
0: I love being in those landscapes in the aftermath. I just hiked up Grizzly Creek here uh, last weekend with my wife, and there was a fire in Grizzly Creek, what, a year, year and a half ago?
1: Last year. Last, last year, year yeah. yeah last it started september last or something last august it started
0: um and being up there now you can just read it there's you know rock slides have happened because a lot of the uh, the vegetation on the hillside burned up there's all this green successional growth coming up that wouldn't have been able to come through oh you're showing me oh my gosh Connor's showing me a photo. Can you send me that? Yeah, (laughs) I'll post that with the episode. He's showing me a photo of, was that from Grizzly Creek? That was
1: from Grizzly Creek taken right at the the end of the road here on the ranch.
0: Wow. So we hiked up there and you could just, yeah, you could read the aftermath of the fire and you go, all right, there's new life. There's all these plant species coming up that I'm not seeing anywhere else. There's, uh, I happened to be there while the trout were um, spawning. Mm -hmm. So there was a Mm -hmm. bunch of trout in those little gravel bars up there spawning. It was beautiful. Um, but yeah, I think, um, fire has always been something that fascinated me. We talked about some books in there. I'm listening to, um, John McClain's Fire on the Mountain currently. Um, I just read Pam Houston's, uh, Deep Creek. Have you read that? I have not. I'm not familiar with it. Pam Houston, a Western writer. She's in Creed, Colorado. Okay. Um, I'll give you that book afterwards. She wrote this incredible book in, in one, uh, one or two chapters, she outlines the South Fork Fire that was closing in on her land. Mm-hmm. Her 120 acres is all surrounded by like BLM, I think BLM or National Forest land, and um, you would really appreciate it because we didn't mention this. You are a certified wildfire, wildfire fighter.
1: Yes, I've, I, um, I'm a wildland firefighter. Got my initial uh, certification in, I think 2006. And just a again funny backup to to Cleveland. I, I come from a family of firefighters, uh, paramedics, nurses, uh, police officers, things like that. But mostly firefighters. My dad, my brother, two of my uncles, a cousin were all firefighters. So that they're all structural firefighters in cities. That didn't that didn't appeal to me. I do like fire. I grew up. Being told not to play with matches. And so of course I did. And, you know, there's nothing like staring into that glow. And, and especially as time went on and I studied forestry and, and a lot of my focus in that was fire ecology, understanding what's going on with it was, was exciting. But, uh, I was able to, uh, I was afforded the opportunity to become a wildland firefighter through the nature conservancy, doing a lot of prescribed fire. And, uh, during my time when I was really focusing on that and full-time firefighter, I think I've conduct or been on over 50 prescribed burns, several wow. thousand acres. So I very much appreciate it, know a lot about it, but I also knew it wasn't what I wanted to do long-term and kind of what you'll gather is my goal is not to be an expert or, or focus on any one thing. It's to understand enough, to bring all these things together in a comprehensive way and solve solve problems. So fire, I think, honestly, when I look at areas, if I ever want to move, I'm looking first and foremost at what the fire regime is because <laughs> I'm not moving to Massachusetts because yeah. uh, I don't much care for the type of fire they have out there.
0: <laughs> I was actually, that was one thing I was slightly concerned about coming out here. I was thinking if we buy property out here, how, what is the, you know, what are the chances we're going to be dealing with a couple of serious out of control wildfires in our lifetime? I don't know. I guess it depends if you're down on the river valley bottom or, you know, what landscape you're in, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I feel like people need to be aware that it's, it's part of life out here. Um Maybe we'll get to this a little bit into the conversation, but There's a lot of people from all over the country moving here from urban areas, especially this past year with the the pandemic, and they're not aware of the reality of it, the risk of it, and how easily it can start and and they can be the ignition source and how quickly it can spread. And to me, that's one of my biggest concerns about the change in the, at least uh, sociopolitical landscape out here mm. but um yeah grizzly creek happened um fortunately no residences were lost a couple outbuildings were lost no lives were lost um it got all the way to the ranch next door we did evacuate or i'm sorry i take it we were asked to evacuate twice i said <laughs> no i'm not leaving here uh i have a fire line dug around the 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 proper or the where we live here. I've got a burnout plan. I, I'm, I'm taking care yeah, of that. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all the neighbors work together. We had some good plans. Uh, I was not worried about losing our place, even though we have, we have, we're right here on the hillside and there's vegetation. We've, we've done the work yeah. necessary to make us as safe as possible, given the conditions.
0: I read in Pam Houston's book that, um, aspen trees, since they hold so much water are actually a good fire break. Is that consistent with what you've learned?
1: Absolutely. It's, it's with an asterisk. Um, in, in most conditions, they do serve as a good fire break. They obviously have to have that moisture in there. They're good at holding in moisture. Uh, there's there's these colonial plants. Um, they all work together. So they are great fire breaks. But as we're talking about fire return interval, Longleaf Pine, North Carolina, one to three years. Oak brush here that we're. I mean, we're sitting here in, in an oak brush forest, and this this would burn maybe every three thirty to fifty years, maybe eight years. Okay. Um, get a little higher into the aspen; it's a little longer. You get all the way up into the the spruce fir above that, into the subalpine uh, fir and in, in the subalpine forest. You're talking five to eight hundred years. Wow. But those still burn, and we still, you know, and that's where as I mentioned the human life scale people can't comprehend a 5 to 800 year cycle and when that happens the conditions have to be right mm. the aspens have to be dry the fire needs to or you know originate uh, down low work up the hillside go through the oak brush go through the the uh, spruce fir you know that aspen is, is going to get hit <clears throat> and it's going to get up to the subalpine and it's going to knock it to the ground. And if you've ever been into the subalpine forest, those trees are packed in there Yeah. and it's going to be burnt all the way to the ground. But you know what? They're designed for that and, and able to recover, but we freak out. Yeah. Cause we're like, Oh my God, it's not going to look like that. Yeah. But we, we need to uh, appreciate and respect that that's how it's
0: designed. So when I was on the, I was telling you earlier, I was on an elk hunt, my first elk hunt last year while the Grizzly Creek fire was happening. Yeah. And I was obviously out of cell service. I had no idea where the fire was going. I was in White River National Forest. You know, I figured I was, I was probably safe, but I wasn't that far. I think it was on uh, red table mountain. Okay. Um, so I'm seeing smoke in the distance every, every day. And kind of going, what's the plan here? Do I climb up higher if it starts getting close? If I feel surrounded, do I go low into the river bottom? So just so I know for next time, what's the best plan of action there?
1: Uh, Well, lightning, you grab your ankles and stick your butt up in the air. Wildfire, (laughs) (laughs) you get (laughs) you get the hell out of there. Um, You know, I think it's always, you know, it's tough around here because you don't have that communication to be able to, you know, check your cell phone, see how things are progressing. But, um, you know, last year was really interesting too, because so many people, again, because of COVID, um, came out here and decided I'm going to get into hunting or I'm going to try hunting in Colorado and yeah. all this stuff. And I, I have concerns about those people who don't maybe have the respect and, and inquiries that you have.
0: I mean, I'm still ignorant, but, uh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean,
1: you'd be surprised that the people I've encountered in the back country, I'm a a backcountry hunter myself. And, uh, so I would say, you know, just don't be in there. <laughs> if, if, you know there's a fire <laughs> around, don't be in there. Obviously they can, they can pop up at any, any moment. Usually, well, naturally by lightning, but more often than not now, because there's people that are somewhat ignorant starting fires when they shouldn't for camp yeah. and things like that. But, um, get the hell out of there. It's not worth it. Trying to get, um, people to come rescue or find you, especially if you're, uh, you're in full camo and hard to trying not to be
0: seen, (laughs) but I wanted an elk. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, we, I don't want to get too far off, off topic here. Um, I, I love the conversation about fire, but I do have some things that I wanted to ask you about specifically. I didn't realize this. You had worked for, um, Duke Phillips, my first podcast guest. And from what I can tell an all around Stand up, guy. Um, can we talk about that experience a little bit? Did did I skip a bit of your, no, your timeline
1: there? No, no. There's, uh, I mean, there was like I, I played firefighter for a while. I was a bird biologist um, oh. for a, a little while in, in the the Bear Islands off of Virginia, which was its own unique experience. Um, I worked for the Department of. Or I spent a summer working for Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune off. The, on the coast of North Carolina, which was a unique experience as well, and I just mentioned that because, um, as we talk about land management, a lot of people think about Forest Service, Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, maybe even Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, one agency that's left out of the conversation quite a bit is Department of Defense. Department mm-hmm. of Defense owns and manages a lot of land across this nation, and in my opinion. Possibly. I would go so far as saying the best land management agency out there, uh, part and parcel, because they, certainly after 9-11, shut down access to the public. And so they're able to just do what needs to be done without really worrying about the pr side of it
0: how much land do they own and, and where is it are we talking about military testing sites and things like that i'm talking bases I, I honestly do not
1: know the the numbers or how it compares to the other agencies um but you know here in colorado we have air force bases we have army bases uh north carolina had uh, army base fort bragg marine corps base camp lejeune marine corps air station cherry point um I'm missing a couple others, but I, I spent a lot of time working with uh, Department of Defense agencies in their management efforts, and their land is contiguous because it's a base. The public is not there; doesn't they don't have to worry about the PR side of it, and they are so well funded. Wow! Their man. When I got to burn <laughs> with those guys, I wanted to ride in the Marine Corps truck because that one was pimped out. That one had all the good equipment the good air conditioning things like that
0: that's funny because as as an environmentalist if you asked me um you know where would you take some of our budget from for environmental causes i'd say D- department of defense absolutely their budgets out of control absolutely but you're telling me that they're actually doing some good con- conservation work
1: the, i mean i'm not going to speak about their their military operations <laughs> but um the, the, the work I was doing there, I was part of a larger research study, and, and my focal area was in the terrestrial unit, and we were studying, the project title was, like, The Impacts of Military Maneuvers on Fire and Forest Ecology in the Coastal Plain. Basically, what happens when you blow up a forest? And, <laughs> again, with the fire return interval being so small there in the short in the coastal plains, it was some of the best ecology in the south because fire was happening so frequent because of uh, munitions and explosives and things like that. Mm. So I just wanted to put that in there. I I did spend a summer doing that and was surprisingly impressed with um, their abilities and and their ethos. So if anyone listening is ever interested in working for an agency or maybe has a military background, and trying to figure out what's next, highly recommend looking at land management and DoD.
0: That's cool. Yeah. I, and now that you say that, actually I was out in Ocala national forest and it was kind of a similar situation. There was a, I think an air force base surrounded by national forest. And I remember they were kind of dealing with wildfire management and doing military testing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sort of that overlap. So that's good to hear. Um, so where'd you go next? So, um,
1: yeah, I knew I wanted to go West. I said, I, I did graduate school. The reason I did two degrees is because the amount of knowledge I wanted to obtain was very vast. Um, forestry was really interested in forests; Wanted to understand how they worked. My MEM, my environmental management degree focused a lot on landscape ecology and wetland riverine systems, restoration, things like that. Paired with my undergraduate degree, which also had a, a large focus in wildlife, uh, which I didn't really mention before, but I wanted to obtain this understanding of not just how the landscape works but how different agents and disturbances and processes happened across the gradients including how the players the animals and the plants involved responded or how they can be impacted and so got all this knowledge and said let's let's do it Well, if you want to operate on scale and encounter all that stuff, you got to go west. And that's where I I headed. I was about to head to Bozeman, thought I was going to go up there. There's a lot of opportunities. I didn't have a plan. I mean, I I had a plan. I didn't have anything lined up. It was to go there, talk to people, had all these people I wanted to uh, interview and discuss with. And then out of nowhere, I got this email from this guy. Uh, Jack Butel, who's, who's now a good buddy of mine, just talked to him a couple weeks ago. But at the time, he was working for Duke Phillips with Ranchlands at Chico Basin Ranch. But he was an accepted admitted student at Duke University, the same program I'm in. And someone, we were at some gathering and someone's like, Jack, you should meet Connor. He wants to go out west. And, da, da, da. and so we talked for 15 minutes. It was great. Whatever. It was like maybe April of that year. Eight months later, I get this random email. Hey, that ranch I was working at is hiring. Do you want a opportunity there? I say, hell yeah. yeah. So he connects me with Duke. I talked to Duke. We had a great conversation. Then uh, he puts me in touch with some of the apprentices there, part of the Ranch Lands Management Guild that he mentioned in his podcast episode. And uh, instead of Bozeman, I'm heading to Colorado Springs to the 89,000 acre Chico Basin Ranch to okay. take a run at playing cowboy.
0: Was it so? Were you part of the apprenticeship program, or did you start as a? What was your position? Um,
1: te- I mean, what they refer to is, is their internship program. It's it's you operate as a ranch hand, cowboy, whatever you want to call it. Um, but Duke is Duke Phillips and Ranchlands is great in that they appreciate and acknowledge that the western ranching heritage and culture is is sunsetting possibly sunsetting here and you can't just keep you know teaching the next generation of ranchers from those families you got to bring in outside new blood excuse me yeah and that's that's really how they tout themselves and and it's bold it's it's risky they take on people I would say, even though I had never had ranching experience, was probably more on the advanced end of the spectrum because I had physical labor understanding and land management understanding. Um, they've taken some, some people where they show up and you're like, oh man, I hope you don't <laughs> die. But um, they take that, that risk knowing that that's what it's going to take to save this culture and this heritage. And so I showed up and uh, it was great it was great. I, I had more questions than I don't think I was able to get answers to. And I only say that because every answer I got two more questions popped up. Um, but he was great. And I would say that his, uh, philosophy, which is very much based off of holistic management, Alan savory, the, the Lassiter's things, families like that, um, is ingrained in me Is a, I want to say all I know, but that's what I've realized is in my opinion, one of the best approaches to the grazing management.
0: Yeah. Um, I came across them, I don't know, right before I started the podcast and did not think that I'd be able to get any like have a conversation with them and they were super gracious and really quick to share what they're doing. Um, have not been to either ranch. So you started at Chico Basin. Did you ever make it out to Zabata?
1: Yeah. So I worked at Chico for, uh, I want to say three months. And I mean, that was full on cowboy. Like you were, you were in the saddle probably six days a week. Wow. We were moving their herd is a few thousand. Uh, they have, I want to say 51, 52 pastures out there. The smallest one being like 600 acres, the largest one, a few thousand. So, in a short grass prairie dry land pasture you're moving animals a lot and they had multiple herds so we were out there i learned a lot about horsemanship i learned a lot about working with livestock and in a more delicate approach to it as opposed to the traditional like cow punch or ram down their throat like attitude so that was great and also learned a lot about the ecology and and how uh in a application how grazing and grassland, uh, grazers and grasslands, uh, have co-evolved and, and, function. Yeah. So I did that. And then Duke asked me, they had a big project over at the Medno Zapata and asked me to go over there and head that up. So I went over and I lived on the Medno side of the ranch, which is, the ranch is divided into. It's 103,000 acres, roughly 50,000, 50,000, give or take. One, the Zapata side is the guest ranch. That's where their cattle are, most of their horses. Um, The other side, the Medno, which is right adjacent to Great Sand Dunes National Park, is where the bison herd resides. And it's one big pasture, almost 50,000 acres, I think a 35-mile perimeter fence, which is a uh, glorified suggestion to the bison. (laughs) And they have to do a uh, a very cognizant job of management based on the the grass and the the grazeability of that area and, and that's obviously always fluctuating uh, to manage that herd so, so i was you're i was just trying to them.
0: keep them moving pretty much right
1: uh, we're no we're not trying to keep they uh, very different than cattle and it was it was a wonderful learning experience for me to watch cattle uh, compared to bison they're very lazy you know they want to get as much as they can out of a little of an area as possible okay they're going to stay by the water they're going to stay by the mineral they're going to stay by the salt stay by the forage you know uh bison i could see out across the landscape many miles and again i lived in a barn in the middle of the pasture i'd wake up i'd look out the window there's 800 bison out my window <laughs> i'd go take a shower eat breakfast I could see as far as, you know. The, the, I can see they'd be gone at that point. There, wow. Duke. I think Duke mentioned in his podcast that they're able to move so slow. Like you almost yeah. wonder how they can move that slow. It's like they're in f- first gear and four low sometimes. <laughs> but then they're gone. They're always moving. So just absolutely fascinating. You can see how. You can appreciate how. They utilize the vast expanse of the plains and the mountains and this whole country.
0: They're such a plains animal, and they they evolved over time with this landscape. And the grasslands need them as much as they need the grasslands. I've never had direct experience with ranching them, though, and it sounds like they behave a little differently than what I expected. What's the role of the rancher in terms of managing the bison? If you're not trying to keep them moving, what what exactly... How often were you actually um, interacting with them
1: at the Mendoza Pata? Um, they're what was termed a conservation herd. Mm. The Mendoza Pata is, is actually owned by the Nature Conservancy, and ranchlands, via Duke Phillips, manages it. And so there's this. There there was you know obviously conversation and always evolving conversation of what are the objectives, and the Nature Conservancy wanted that. Herd to be functioning in a way that was as na- "quote unquote" natural as possible. The genetics on those animals are, I want to say, I believe like ninety-eight percent pure. There's always like you know some level of of beef genetics in bison in a lot of cases, um, just through the restoration efforts from the early 1900s, but handful of herds still exist in this country that are genetically pure these were not we didn't move them we i take it back they were moved once a year oh. they had to be uh, processed and so where i lived was known as the bison barn in there was the the chutes and the corrals and everything where they and the, the squeeze chutes which a squeeze chute for a bison is <laughs> uh, quite the apparatus compared to the, the squeeze chute for a for a, a cattle but um, once a year, they had to bring them in. They had to check, they had to vaccinate them. Um, you know, brucellosis is, is, is an issue they got to consider. They also need to understand what the composition of their herd is to figure out what they need to call based on the the conditions, the the grazability of of the pasture. So once a year, they they brought them up, brought them in. I, th- I think you've mentioned before you've seen Duke and the Buffalo, the the yeah. film that was made. There was also I want to say a six part series on the history channel, uh, talking about it, but really cool stuff. I mean, when they, when they brought those bison in shit got Western really quick there. (laughs) Unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate in that process, but I was helping build fences and compartmentalize that 50,000 acre pasture to make it, uh, increase that the chance of success of, of doing that. So
0: yeah, it's not a domesticated animal.
1: No, no. I mean, and I've been out there and, and I'm not worried that they're just for no reason at all gonna charge at me, but like any, any mama bear you get near the, the cub or the red dog there, uh, going to come after you. <laughs> I've had that happen. It's, oh, wow. it's scary, but, um, Hey, I'm in their territory. But uh, it was it was a fascinating animal, and, and I think uh, we were talking earlier about the things that are just truly American. Ranching is, is one to an extent. I mean, obviously we have ranching all over the world, but the American bison and bourbon. And turkeys. <laughs> and tur- turkeys, there <laughs> we go, are these uh, just truly American things. And, and thank God for the conservation efforts of Theodore Roosevelt and, and a handful of others that they were uh, able to be— Preserved and expanded, and, and funny enough, is these large, majestic creatures that they are, they were one of uh, one of the smaller grazing animals of the Pleistocene era. Yeah, a lot of those giant, you know, uh, ground sloths and beavers and and mastodons all were extirpated.
0: And there's and, extinct bison species that were even larger. Absolutely, I was just listening to a podcast, uh, one of the Mediator podcasts. They had an archaeologist on who was talking about this Clovis site in Gunnison. Okay. Um, And they carbon dated it to um, 12,400 years ago. And they found um, a winter camp of modern humans. Winter camp in Gunnison. What the hell are you doing? Which
1: is like (laughs) one of the coldest places in in the country.
0: They were up on this um, above the airport now where the airport sits. And they've got kind of a panoramic view of the valley and they think it was a winter hunting ground. They found evidence to prove that it was in winter based on the growth of the, they found um, that extinct bison, they found teeth and bones from them Uh and through the kind of growth rings in the teeth figured these animals died in winter. So they're like, these people are 12,400 years ago when it was even colder than it is now. Yeah. Hanging out in Gunnison on a hilltop in the winter. Absolutely insane. Yeah. you know, it's just And, and when you unreal. look at the
1: physiology, the anatomy and the physiology of the bison, that giant hump on their back serves to, to facilitate their head as a snowplow.
0: These oh, animals
1: are designed for very rough conditions. And when you, when you look at videos, say, of, of a herd of bison going through Yellowstone National Park in the winter and through the snow that's, you know, four or five plus feet deep, their head are just back and forth. They're just <laughs> snow plowing through there. These guys were created for that. So, hey, crazy probably, but hey, kudos to those guys for <laughs> one hunt bison in the winter and Gunnison.
0: Um, well, now we're here on, on this ranch you're living in and you're in the Roaring Fork. You came here to work for the Land Trust, um, but eventually you went on to do your own thing. I do want to talk about your company. Um, yeah resiliency lands. Um, what kind of clients are you serving? What's your kind of mode of practice? Tell me a little bit more about it. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, I kind of forgot. I've been getting so excited about all these things. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to make sure you get to things. talk about hey, what you're, what you're doing. Th- thanks. Um, yeah, I'll just quickly segue and say, uh, just for the, the, uh, the bridge there, I left, uh, the Mendo Zapata and ranch lands in September, 2012. To pursue an opportunity with Aspen Valley Land Trust, which is based here in Carbondale, and worked there for I want to say three and a half years. It was a wonderful experience. Got to ex- expose to a huge spectrum of landscapes. Their their service area goes from Independence Pass, the Continental Divide, east of Aspen, the high alpine, subalpine, uh, the high alpine forest, subalpine tundra all the way down to the high desert outside of Grand Junction. So that was wonderful. Landowners, as diverse as they come, the (laughs) people who were fourth, fifth, sixth generation ranchers, been in the family for well over 100 years, uh, to the millionaire and, and not uncommon billionaire landowners that came in from out of state, trying to figure out how to have land, meet their, whatever their personal needs are while still operating under the confines of a conservation easement. And
0: Can we define a conservation easement a little bit for the listeners? Yeah.
1: So uh, a a conservation easement, an easement, there's two types of easements. There's a positive easement and a negative easement. A positive easement is something like you have a road easement through a property. You have a power line easement. It gives something to someone a conservation easement is a negative easement in that it takes something away and it doesn't I, I, take is probably the wrong word it's a voluntary agreement a landowner just as they can sell their property and turn it into a subdivision or a Walmart or whatever they can also decide you know what i don't i, I don't want to do that not only do i not want to do that i want to make sure that never happens and so they can give up those certain development rights and there's there's a strategy involved in how much to give up because if you give it all up then you can't have anything you can't have a house you can't have anything on it and and that's not appropriate in but most
0: cases you can continue to live on the land ranch it in some cases pass it on to next generations you just sign off the right for it ever to be developed surface mined, etc right
1: Every easement is unique. Okay. Um, so there's not a one size fits all. Typically, yes, you can always live on it. Always, most cases work it. Um, I have seen some easements where people say, I don't want to cut a single tree ever on this property. I don't want to <laughs> tell hunt. Them about fire management. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of lessons learned over the years uh, from, from, the history of land trust. But uh, yeah, there's, I mean, I know even here in this valley, some easements where you cannot cut down a single tree commercially on the property. And that has become a problem for good management because in this case, in this case, I'm referencing sudden Aspen decline came in and almost the entirety of their Aspen forest was lost and they can't do anything about wow. it because they voluntarily gave up the right to so And that's part where my work comes in. Uh, there's a, actually two parcels over from where we're sitting right now. That land is under conservation easement. That landowner said, I don't want hunting to ever happen here. Cool. Like maybe in theory, but when everything else around you is hunted and all the animals realize that they can go there and not have any pressure, they're going to decimate the ecology there. So it's a, it's a, it's
0: a concern. And it's, I mean... I understand the structure of it and and appreciate, um, in general, the structure of conservation easements. But at some point, you kind of go, is it your right just because you are here now? Uh, like, there's a great quote, it's not ours, um, just our turn.
1: We're just borrowing it from our children or something. Right. Like so
0: that, it's yeah. your turn right now to manage this land. But who are you to say that in 100 years, that person doesn't get to hunt the land either? I don't know, you kind of get into the strange ethics of it.
1: Well, I mean, you could also say... Well, if grandpa decides to sell off the land and turn it into a subdivision, well, that right's totally off the table. Good point. <laughs> regardless. So uh, I totally get it. It's, there, there's a lot to it. And again, everyone is unique and appropriately so. Um, there are, uh, obviously, it's a crazy concept. There's financial benefits
0: to it. Yeah. So what, that was one thing I wanted to ask you is it seems like in this part of the country, conservation easements are particularly popular- Because there's a lot of money here, um, a lot of people who have second homes, who have vacation ranches and things like that, and placing that property under a conservation easement gives them a significant tax benefit because you can deduct, if you've got a million dollar property, you place it in a conservation easement, it's now worth 600 grand because there's no development uh, rights, you can take that 400 grand difference and deduct it from your taxes, correct?
1: Yes. No, that was a great, very simplified, uh, explanation. I've been I mean, reading. It's Hey, I love it. I love it. I will add, a uh, you know, another layer to that and that there's more dichotomy here. Um, there are two types of conservation easements purchased and donated. So you can donate it and receive a financial benefit in the, in the manner you're mentioning, uh, through tax deductions and Colorado is unique in that they're, you both get to benefit from the federal income tax deductions, which you can, and, and I hope I get this right, I haven't had to say this in a while, but basically, like you said in, in your example, you have a, a $400,000 donation. That's what's considered the value of the easement. You have a uh, an appraiser, a qualified appraiser in this type of dealings come in, what's the highest and best use, which is usually sell it off, turn it into a subdivision. How much money can you make if you did that? If we want to say a million dollars, just for the sake of simplicity, then you say, here's all the things I want to give up. Like, okay, now the property is only worth $600,000. The value of the easement is $400,000. You can make back up to that $400,000 in federal income tax savings over, I believe it's 20 year period. Okay. And it's a certain percentage of your income. If you're more than 50% of your income comes from agriculture, it's higher, all these different nuances. We're very fortunate here in the Roaring Fork Valley and specifically Picking County, which is home to Aspen, that there is a open space program and associated fund, which the, the, the citizens, the, the people in Pickens County voted almost 20 years ago to establish this program and then just re-upped it for, I want to say, another 25 years, maybe two or so years ago. Basically, it's based off of um, you know local taxes and stuff like that. But the program has usually around $10 million a year to buy the easement instead of the landowner having to do all the tax stuff. In the case of one of my clients, we sold an easement to the county. The prop, the ranch was evaluated at over $30 million. Based on what we did, we were able to evaluate the easement at $10 million, and we got a $10 million check to... Ew. Hey, oh. So and that's <laughs> a lot of my work right now is to figure out what we're going to do with that $10 million.
0: Well, let's get into it. Let's get into your work right now. You, uh, Like you said, you're kind of a generalist. Your bookshelf is filled with all sorts of different content from, you know, ecological management, wildfires, soil health, livestock, grazing. Um, you're kind of pulling from all these different worlds and combining it into a practice where you consult with people's land. And I'm guessing you've met a lot of those clients through your previous work, um, I guess I don't know if you want to talk about a specific project or just kind of how your your practice works on a day to day, because I think this is a little bit unique. I, I haven't met anyone who's doing exactly what you're doing.
1: Uh, nor have I. I've met people who are close, like you know, have some overlap, and we we're kind of this. We have this, I would say, like support group of <laughs> on the island of misfit toys, <laughs> almost. Introduce me, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but. I think it's my work is truly unique in that no one's doing exactly what I'm doing. There's a lot of overlap, uh, in, in some aspects, but I loved my time at AVLT and the land trust. The reality of it was it, it wasn't as fulfilling for me as, as I needed it to be. You know, there was a lot of dealing with legal paper and, you know, enforcement of these terms and, uh, figuring out how to fix mistakes people made if they violated those terms. Um, that's not what I wanted to do. So I was, uh, I thought I was going to go work for another consulting firm. And in that, I, I almost committed to them and uh, realized or thought to myself, I might be able to do this on my own. Uh, that was almost six years ago, five and a half years ago. Uh, I'm still glad I did that would i do it differently probably but (laughs) hey that's how life is but it's it's fun i wake up every morning absolutely loving what i'm doing and probably my my largest client without a doubt is uh, a project here sunfire ranch which uh we talked about a little bit earlier is now 1200 acre ranch south of carbondale it's owned by the fifth and sixth generation owners members of the family um, they I actually,
0: get, I don't get jealous a lot, but <laughs> I'm jealous of fifth and sixth generation Colorado ranchers.
1: <laughs> it's, 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 it's absolutely fascinating when you get to and, and amazing, when you get to work with families like that, because there is such a unique connection to the land and respect and sense of responsibility. Uh, they, they don't like to be called the owners. We, we, a lot of times say they're the, the current stewards of the land. That's their responsibility. Their job is to make the best decisions with the information they have to be able to hand it down. Um, also mindful of the the fact that their ancestors took this land and that, that, that uh, whether you want to call them first nation, Native Americans, indigenous, the, the you know, the Ute, the Ute Indian nation, uh, this is their territory. This was their land. Um, it was, it was taken from them. They they have a piece of paper from, I want to say Grover Cleveland saying that it's theirs uh, from 1893, but there's, there's still that respect. And, and so there's some contemplation with that, you know, I've, that's a whole deep dive, but it's great to work with people like that, that have that connection. Their family's land holdings was significantly larger and, while the land had always been ranched through the generations, in a lot of cases, sheep ranching, some cattle, uh, but also potato farming, which I don't know if you know this, but the Roaring Fork Valley here, right around Carbondale, Aspen, used to produce more potatoes than this entire state of Idaho, which...
0: I had no idea.
1: Everyone knows about Idaho. <laughs> uh, the the one pasture up on Sunfire Ranch, uh, I'm told, produced seven train loads. Of or train. I'm sorry, train cars, train car loads of potatoes annually.
0: I wonder what those potatoes were like. There's, They're like super cold hardy weird potatoes. Or it's,
1: um, I actually have on my list of things to buy a book about potatoes because <laughs> they talk about those potatoes they they grew there. But yeah, it was uh, you know potatoes and at this in at this altitude in this climate. You can't grow a whole lot other than, than grass and, and root vegetables, yeah. i.e. potatoes. So it's been fun to work with that family. Um, I knew them a little bit beforehand, kind of reached out to them as I was starting out, and things just, it was it was symbiotic. It was just made sense. The, the current stewards, the fifth generation, are a pair of brothers that are, I want to say like 43, 44 years old and 37 years old, so they're young. Um, they're very humble. They've, they grew up on the land, their family, their parents weren't quote unquote ranchers. They leased a lot of it out and they want to surround themselves, but with as many innovative, thoughtful people as, as possible. Um, I humbly say that because I'm one of the people they were able to, that they've invited to the table there. And now my job is to think about every single possibility we can do out there because traditional ranching doesn't pay the bills anymore. So we're, we're having to get creative and that's a lot of the work I do now.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, right there in the title, in the, um, you know, your company name resiliency lands, tell me what, um, and you know, I think we, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but resiliency in your practice, what all does that mean? And how do you achieve it with your clients here? It was, you know,
1: in starting a, a company, you, you do think about that because that's, that's the first thing people see. And I knew in, in whatever capacity I was operating in, I wanted to do it right. And I wanted to be respectful. And I wanted to do it in a way that left a mark, not just for now, but down the road trying to think beyond that human lifespan and to me resiliency is what everyone should manage for that's what they should strive for um, we have gotten into a lot of bad spots in this nation from land management because we thought we were very short-sighted we wanted immediate returns the dust bowl we were tilling over land you know forget what the ecology here looks like and, and what nature is trying to tell us. We're going to strong arm this. We're going to rule with an iron fist. Nature always wins. And so, my goal is how do we function and manage in concert with nature? And my kind of three pillars are I'm looking at structure, I'm looking at function and composition. So, we want to the composition we want, you know, what's appropriate to be here? What is here? What was here? Are we trying to? get from what we have now to what we had? Or do we look at what maybe could or should be here because changing climate, conditions, things like that? Um, I want to look at structure. I want to see how things operate and interact with each other, especially with disturbance. How does the riverine, the riparian system function with the adjacent shrubland, with the adjacent forest? Um, and then um so that's structure, structure, structure composition. composition, and then function. How do they work together? And, and again, we're in a disturbance-dependent part of the world. Fire is a huge, probably the most in-your-face disturbance agent. Drought is a disturbance agent. Yeah. Um, grazing animals, whether domestic or wild, are part of disturbance agents. Uh, we get wind events, blowdowns, we get avalanches, um, all sorts of different disturbance things. So I wanna look at all of those things, figure out how we, if and when we manipulate things, and resiliency is the goal. And so I look at it as ecological resiliency. If we can focus on that and chase that, it's going to give us economic resiliency because these systems are designed to bounce back from those disturbances. Those disturbances are changing. So we have to change our approach to management approach to management to reflect that. Um, and again, like I said, beef is, is not paying the bills anymore. So how do we maybe start incorporating other economic drivers like uh, outfitting, hunting, Um, How do we maybe bring in agritourism? How do we use the water that's available to maybe do some row cropping where appropriate? Um, How do we do events, gather people, do education, all sorts of different things. I have a whole arsenal of economic drivers that I pull from. Probably, Actually, I know I've written them down, (laughs) 30 to 40 of them. Wow. And then I go to a client and say, What are your objectives? Because first and foremost, you know, this podcast, The Land Ethic, ethics, I I had to take ethics classes in in forestry school, land management school, and first and foremost, you work for the client, and you have to meet their objectives. Sometimes they maybe are a little naive, and you can say, well, let's think a little bit bigger picture. Uh, I tend to work with the people that are receptive to those types of conversations versus the bullheaded, no, we're going to... I just want a manicured high fence. If someone said, I called me and said, I want a high fence manicured property. I'm going to say, you're going to have to call someone else. (laughs) But, um, my, my goal is how do we weave this in? And, uh, again, conservation easement or not, those people have the right to get rid of that land and sell it to someone else with different intents. So I can't stop land from being sold. I can't, stop the millionaires and billionaires from coming in and buying multi-generational properties but i can help guide them to meet their objectives and hey while we're at it let's do some good for the wildlife or for the the neighboring landowner and reduce wildfire risk or let's let's grow some food in a way maybe you didn't think of or know how to from from farming to to livestock ranching so that's That's my goal. That's why, like you said, you look at my bookshelf and it has all the different things because the world's changing. I wake up every morning going, what does the world look like today? Yeah, And it's exciting.
0: In my field, we would call it master planning, what you're doing kind of adjacent. You're kind of pulling everything on the table, collecting all the data, looking into all the, the legal resources, the Economic resources, everything. Compiling it into, uh, do you hand your clients a a final, you know, document, or is this more of a elongated uh, uh, or a p- prolonged um, process where you keep working with them over time to establish those goals?
1: Yeah, it depends on the client and the project. There's some cases where I come in, it's you know maybe a wildfire uh, risk assessment and mitigation plan. That's a physical plan. They get it. They apply it. Uh, whether I, uh, procure subcontractors to execute it or they do it on their own, is up to them. Okay. Um, that's some cases, um, some, I am in it for the long haul, you know, when th- there was a point where some fire like, we want you to die here on this ranch <laughs> da, 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 or, I mean, not like die right now, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. be here until I die kind of thing, which, you know, there's, there's something to be said about that and to be appreciated for that, um, that being said, we still have written plans. We're always writing plans. Um, we have we do have a master plan that's associated with the conservation easement. Uh, something that's difficult with that, exciting yet difficult, is these conservation easements are forever. So we're trying to figure out everything we want to do between now and forever. <laughs> write it down and give it to the county and say, well, we want to retain all these rights, but we want to <laughs> give up these. Um, so they're all at on um, front of mind right now. And I have to work with the clients and go, listen, cool. We're going to get to goat yoga at some point, (laughs) but we have a lot of other things to do before then to, to make sure we're resilient, make sure that uh, we're moving forward at a pace that we're able to utilize what's known as adaptive management. We have a strategy, but we're going to change as we realize what, um, what factors are out there that are known. And even those that are unknown outside of our, our realm of control. So in that case with Sunfire, we, there's a balance, everything. We have all these land management objectives. Most of them don't pay for themselves. So we look at some other economic driver to offset that. So if we want to improve habitat for elk, we can do that, but it's, usually going to be at a financial loss. So how do I say let's do weddings out there. We're going to pay get paid x amount of dollars per a wedding and then use that money to pay for the 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 elk habitat management. We actually have yeah. our first uh, wedding out at the ranch next month which is a 250 person wedding. Um, all right. We're, hey, you know, buckle up. We're doing it.
0: Well, you sparked a few thoughts there. Um, one of them being, I think when I first spoke to Duke and and also when I spoke to the folks at Rome Ranch, I was kind of thinking, like, this can't be the future of all ranching because, you know, not every ranch is a picturesque, um, you know, retreat or a, a destination wedding kind of place. There, most of the ranchers across the U.S. probably can't offer those programs of um, to establish economic diversity. Uh, what would you say to ranchers that are that are in other parts of the country, that are you know in the Midwest and the, where you grew up, uh, even? And you know, I don't know. I, I'm sure there's other ways that they can establish economic diversity, but um, it, in terms of agritourism and weddings and. Hunting programs. If all of that is taken away, what's the answer?
1: I would say, like anyone listening who really wants the details, you can call me and contract. You know? <laughs> but um, oh man, no, without you know giving it all away, <clears throat> which which I absolutely couldn't, anyways. Um, yeah, you got to make it fit. You got to make it fit with with where you are. I know you had mentioned um, one of the podcasts of yours I heard about. The wild hog issue down in Texas that that you're you're seeing. How do you have a problem and turn that into a solution? Um, i one thing in all my years of of formal training and 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 being a practitioner was surprised how little or almost never I was presented with the idea of using food and in a culinary, aspect to, as a driving force for land management. Um, food is this one common denominator amongst all of us. I don't care who you are. I mean, if, if you're one of those people who are you're outdoorsy in the sense that you drink wine on a patio versus you're going on a 30 day trip down the grand Canyon, I don't care anyone in that spectrum. Has a level of an appreciation for good food, and <clears throat> in, in I can't remember what episode that was, but talking about the the um, wild hogs, how do you how do you present that in a way that now you have a market, and that's where the bison re, uh, have been so successful, and that yeah they were they're a charismatic megafauna. We people love to preserve them or conserve them, bring them back. But the Ted Turner's and and, and the Roan Rancher, the epic bar of the world, they created an economic outlet for it. And that is how success was found. There's a warm and fuzzy side of everything, but it gets you so far. There has to be the economic driver. And again, this ties back to why I went to the program at Duke versus say MS program at a state university, because you have to learn how these things all tie together. I spend a fair bit of my time working with or talking to chefs saying, hey, I've got this gnarly landscape. We can't put your traditional Black Angus or Hereford Black Angus mix out there, but I can get Highland cattle or something or goat. How do I have an economic outlet for that and work with them? And Well, let's have a festival. Let's do this and invite this and... Then you're also going, okay, well now I've got meat processing regulations and USDA that I gotta figure out. And so I'm always paying attention to that. And where's the needle being moved with that regard? COVID was a huge eye-opener, but I mean, we all saw the the, the craziness, the uh, the demand for toilet paper, but also meat and and I mean the price ranchers were sending um, you know, your, your high quality cuts, your steaks to be ground, a lot of ground beef. Wow. This time last year was from your high quality cuts <laughs> because so many people wanted meat in their freezer, but a lot of people are intimidated by a nice steak. I'll buy They'll buy a, a filet, which they think is a good cut, which I can argue against <laughs> um, in a restaurant But if you ask them to prepare a filet at home, they're going to say, no, give me a, give me hamburger meat instead. So flank steak's the way to go. right? (laughs) So you got, (laughs) you got to figure out, you have to understand what the culture both locally and globally or nationally is. And we, we live in a bubble. We live in a very unique bubble, which is great because we can do some crazy stuff here. I get, I mean, I can get people to buy crazy cuts of, of, of meat, my my freezer downstairs. I've got some beef cheeks and some beef tongue, which to me are some of the best cuts on the on, on the animal.
0: I'll trade you. I uh, got some wild hog for you.
1: Let's do it. All I'm right. in.
0: Do a meat swap.
1: Um, I'm in. So so, <laughs> I guess my point is, my work. I'm working with these chefs. I'm being diverse, trying to figure out these drivers. Um, right before you showed up here, I was on the phone with um, a marketing and branding consultant that I'm working with for a client to brand ourselves and, and and create our image and and how we're being projected to the world. So I do that yesterday. I mean, literally 24 hours ago, I was on a ranch showing it to a bride and groom that might get married out there next year. Um, this morning, my first phone call was from a wedding planner to tell me about this wedding we're doing next month. So it's all over the place. Throughout the day, I was texting with Colorado Parks and Wildlife to about another subject. I'm paying attention to what the new regulations are to go out and eat. Um, Figuring out, I mean, I'm in constant communication with local and state politicians to be in their ear about things. So it's all, resiliency comes from diversity. And my clients usually have a lot going on and (laughs) even though you might own a ranch it's it could be hard to think about it i wake up every morning going how am i going to work with the the, my clients and the landscape that has been presented to me with this ever-changing world and move the needle yeah and hopefully share it with people so we can make it the largest impact possible
0: I love it, man. I'm going to get
1: off my soapbox now. Yeah,
0: it's super cool. And it's something that, like I said, I haven't really seen. I mean, there's consultants of different types, but you have built a really wide knowledge base. And um, you're serving, like you said, we are kind of in a bubble, but you're serving unique client needs in this valley. I look forward to seeing more of your work in person, hopefully getting out to Sunfire Ranch in particular. Um, Speaking of... Uh, To wrap up kind of here I saw a couple of mule deer um, Bucks Downstairs that you had killed uh, On Sunfire you said Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about hunting and fishing here Something that we both love to do And um, selfishly I want to kind of get your Your calendar here Of what (laughs) what are you doing this year Because I'm trying to plan my uh, You know September, October You know the seasons I haven't lived here over a winter yet Um, Yeah what are you doing this year
1: I, um, so as you might've gathered, when I want to l- know about something, I go full send. Uh, I'm only in my maybe sixth, seventh year of hunting. No, uh, six year. I'm six similar. Th- yeah. Five okay, or six yeah. years. Yeah. Um, I, I, I go in, I, I do it all. I'm technically legally an outfitter. Um, Ew. and, uh, the re I've always had an interest in hunting, uh, You know, going back to college, Catawba, I was your uh, tree-hugging hippie, you know, hemp necklace, tie-dye shirt kind of thing. Don't cut the trees. Don't shoot the animals. I ate meat, but, you know, didn't appreciate it. Um, I just didn't grow up in that culture. You know, I just never had that exposure. And honestly, back East, didn't have – I had whitetail in in North Carolina and I think Ohio – that just never was appealing enough to me to drive me to get into hunting. You give me a piece of elk and uh, that's what changed my world. I mean, I the actual meat. The, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I, I had my, you know, first, you know, whether it was a burger or steak, I was just like, really? <laughs> Re- okay. It is fantastic. I can do this. Uh, You know, same with mule deer and, 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 tur- and you know, all, all the game animals out here. I mean, I, I probably put in for, I think I've got six different, six applications or applications in for six different game animals for this fall. I'm currently have an open tag right now for Turkey, which I've yet to get out for. Um, I think tomorrow morning I'm going to go out for the first day, but um, I love the meat. That was most important to me. I had to find something that hunting made sense for me from, from that consumer standpoint with my work, it it coincided with starting this business and hunting my work. I had to understand that a lot of these landowners had land, especially the newer landowners for the benefit of hunting on their ranch. And I could talk all day as a wildlife ecologist, biologist, and say X, Y, and Z. I couldn't relate to them as a hunter. So I got into hunting and I, my my suspicions were correct that I looked at everything completely different after I became a quote unquote titled hunter the first day out the, the, you know, how they interact with the landscape, how you manipulate the landscape and they respond to that, your vantage points, your, how the sun comes up, how the wind, you know, operates. So it changed my ability and, and effectiveness as a land manager. So it started with elk. Got in mule deer, which are just these these ghosts that just come and go. And there's a there's a tail and a white rump, and then it's gone. And um, same with the turkey. I mean, they, they come and they go. So it's just so exciting. Um, I totally support hunting. I support people getting into hunting. I know we're wrapping up. I can go into a whole deep dive about the North American model of wildlife conservation and the Pittman robertson act and the dingle johnson act and how our monies for wildlife management and conservation are dependent on hunting and why there is a understanding in the fear of conservation groups of the declining number of hunters because that means declining number of dollars that go towards conservation personally i feel like we need to rewrite the whole system. Something I'm possibly interested in participating in uh, and I'm very supportive of the groups that are doing that, but um, we also have to find balance and, and let's, let's, let's put meat in our freezers, but also know that like Colorado is one of the most liberal states for hunting as far as ease of getting tags. Anyone could walk into Colorado and get an over-the-counter archery tag, second or third season uh, bull elk tag, and and go and hunt, and and turkey in a lot of cases, and and we're feeling the pressure.
0: Yeah, and the herds are not doing as well as they have been. Um, From what I understand, the elk herds and mule deer herds are kind of on the decline lately. Um, We've got the reintroduction of wolves. There's a lot going on in this state. And I think we're going to have to follow up with a second podcast to get into all that. Um, oh, I
1: forgot about, I mean, I, I, I didn't have a, I had a secret stance on the wolves. I have a public stance. Um, I, I yeah, that's a whole thing. Uh, recreation to Colorado. I was intentional with, uh, I was looking at Montana. I did secretly want to get to Colorado.
0: Bozeman is like the voice of the outdoors right now.
1: It, it is, it is, it's, it's still a very, it's turning into what Colorado used to be to an extent, But um, I like Colorado and I intend to stay in Colorado because of the challenges we're facing. And in this part of the state, we have a um, a very prominent oil and gas industry, uh, which is waning. And as a result, there is a lot of conversation and efforts towards expanding the already very well-established recreation economy and that recreation economy in my opinion does not have rules regulations uh uh, reparation agreements anything the way oil and gas does and we're building trails we're 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 incentivizing uh people to get out here and hike and mountain bike and get into the backcountry skiing and you know bag your 14 or bag all 50 some 14ers and we're we're Generating an economy that, at the surface level, looks sustainable and and environmentally beneficial, but a lot of us who are in the know see the impacts that are happening to the the wildlife. We're seeing the impacts. You know, these people are out here uh, starting fires or littering or different things like that. It's kind of
0: a paradox where you think it is. People think that recreational hikers and mountain bikers and people, just because you're not killing an animal, they assume that you're not doing any damage to the habitat. When in reality, it's sometimes the opposite. The hunters are a little bit more well-informed and more ethical about how they uh, inhabit that space versus the the other recreational users. Would
1: you agree? 100%. And, and as I mentioned, you know, the Pittman-Robertson Act and the Dingle-Johnson Act. Monies directly come from purchases of, of equipment and, and uh, you know munitions, all those things that are associated with those activities. There's nothing like that in the other recreational activities. And beyond that, I've been to, say, Outdoor Retailer, which is a huge um, uh, conference or collection congregation of the outdoor industry, the brands where they have meetings like, how do we fight what's called the backpack tax, which is this concept of a similar Pittman-Robertson idea to tax outdoor, other general outdoor equipment for the benefit of conservation, which is a very difficult task, don't get me wrong, but there are efforts in that community to fight that so that they don't have added costs associated with selling their products. Uh, But that's what it's going to take. If you're going to sell a recreation economy without a plan we're doomed.
0: Yeah. I think that I would be completely on board with something like that. The hunters are paying for, for, you know, their, uh, participation. The non hunters should be doing the same thing. Yeah.
1: Man, um, you just, I thought I was all talked out and you just stirred, <laughs> you just poked the bear here. <laughs> hey,
0: well, I hope you'll be a recurring guest on the show. Uh, I'd love to talk more about this. I think we're into a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Um, probably going to pester you about, uh, going fishing together, stuff like that um, being new here it's um, you've got a lot of great information that um, and I want it
1: <laughs> well I appreciate that and I I appreciate obviously people are coming here this is a wonderful place yeah. to live I hope I, I would hope and just wish that everyone had kind of had that ethic and that, that land ethic that that uh, respect and understand that there's a unwritten uh, Obligation that we have to this landscape to perpetuate the view we're looking at, the w- animals we
0: have here, the local food, the fresh water, the headwaters of the Colorado River. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I'm self-conscious. I'm sorry, I
1: wasted so much time talking about silly things at the beginning. <laughs> no, uh, no, no. This no. is the good stuff, and we'll we'll have to we'll have to revisit some of this. And yeah. welcome to the valley. Thank you so much for for concocting this podcast and being so bold to, to, to do it. And the guests you've had so far have been wonderful. I've enjoyed listening to it and I, I can't wait to hear, uh, what you have in store?
0: Thanks. Yeah. I don't know uh, if you're like me, but if, if you are, you'll hate listening to yourself. Uh, (laughs) be assured that, uh, you're, you're fantastic. I think that, um, yeah, this episode maybe will serve to kind of introduce you and then I would love to check in with you periodically and talk more focused on like some of these issues and get into them. Um, well, if
1: you ever need an Ed McMahon or Johnny Carson, you <laughs> let me know.
0: Um, I, I will say I am self conscious around town telling people I'm from Texas because yeah, there's that, that kind of exhale of like, all right, we got another one. Yeah, right? I'm like, I promise I, <laughs> I'll, I'll treat it well.
1: Yeah, no, you, you'll do just, just fine out here, no doubt.
0: Um, so. To wrap up here, I think, um, so you've plugged your resiliency lands. People can check out your website, yep. uh, to get in touch with you. Um, anything else you want to kind of plug and, um, and then when you're finished with that, any other sort of book recommendations or uh, podcast guests that <laughs> I should know oh, about? Man. Here?
1: All right. I'll, I'll try and wrap up real, real quick here. I will say, I've said this before in interviews, I implore anyone Who lives out here especially in these small smaller rural communities pay attention to your newspapers your local politics your local happenings uh your you know development plans all those things because that's that's what really matters that's what's gonna uh impact the landscape i've been here not even a decade and i've seen significant change um but i know that i've participated and i'm all right you know, knowing you can't win every battle, but I would say, you know, participate, do the things, stay, stay knowledgeable. It's easy to get caught up on national or international news, but I I do really think it's important to be aware of the the local or, or regional issues. Water is a whole beast out here that people need to be more aware of. Uh, so that's that. Um, Man, I can give you a million podcast recommendations. I, I, I'll give you probably most of them offline, but yeah. um, <clears throat> I think you, there's there's some good people doing some good stuff uh, here in Colorado, across the West. Uh, I can think of some into Canada, back east, and I think any problem we have is is going to be solved with a diverse crowd. And I am a, this might seem uh, (laughs) contrary given uh, how much I've spoken here, but I do think that we have two ears and one eye or one mouth for a reason. So uh, I would say, you know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of good stuff to offer, especially these old timers around here who who are, are, are starting to hit the dusty trail here. So yeah interact with as many of them as possible real quick with books. We were talking earlier, pre podcast, pre episode about, uh, my side of the mountain, which is my favorite book, hands down, very impactful as a young child. So definitely recommend anyone from 10 years old to 90 years old, pick it up, read it, reread it, give it to someone. If you want me to give me their address and I'll send them a (laughs) copy. Um, Good thing hugely. I don't have that many listeners yet, right. or you'd be, uh,
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you'd be shelling out some books. Right. Uh,
1: I did recommend to you, I pointed out this book called The Naturalist, which is about Theodore Roosevelt and kind of his uh, early life and, and his exposure to naturalism and, and, and uh, conservationism that was a huge driving force in the president that he became and, and his life post-presidency, uh, wilderness warrior which is also about theodore roosevelt which is a very dense very long book but very comprehensive about all things conservation in this nation um i don't know i can so that's many, great so yeah i'm gonna but that's I'm gonna where I would you start.
0: offline for some some more stuff especially uh yeah. some people that you know here but uh thank you check out resilience resiliencylands.com correct and uh connor p coleman on instagram yes sir all right thanks connor Dylan, thank you it was a pleasure Looking forward to more of these.